three, two, one. It's time to talk about the climate crisis. The climate crisis has been impacting all of us, and it's been on my heart to have a climate-focused episode on Podcast Noor, but I wanted to make sure the conversation was going to be one my listeners were really going to connect to, because I'll admit it, I have had a hard time really connecting with and tuning into conversations around climate, even though I can feel and witness and see all of the impact that's happening around us. So the question I had been asking myself was, is the climate conversation actually a spiritual one? And because everything and everyone is interconnected, the answer I found was, yes, of course it is. So this is a conversation I wanted to have multiple perspectives and stories on. So that means another podcast mood panel. The first person who came to mind for this conversation is one of my dearest friends, Sophia Lee. Sophia Lee is a Chinese-American award-winning climate journalist and advocate. Her life's work is to make talking about issues such as climate justice, human rights, and Web3 more accessible, more digestible, and more human. She is the person I go to first when it comes to having conversations around the climate. And even Harvard named her one of the top climate communicators of 2022. She is also the co-founder of Steward, a digital art collection and community that partners with nonprofits and global artists to protect the major ecosystems of our natural world. And around the time I knew I wanted to have this conversation, I saw a powerful cover of Time Magazine's Women of the Year issue featuring a young activist by the name of Aisha Siddiqa. Aisha Siddiqa is a human rights and land defender from the tribal lands of Mochiwala and Mahsan in Pakistan. She is the co-founder of Polluters Out and Fossil Free University. Her work focuses on uplifting the rights of marginalized communities while holding polluting companies accountable at the international level. She is a climate advisor to the UN Secretary General and a research scholar at the NYU School of Law, working to bridge the environmental and human rights sector with the youth climate movement. She is also an incredible poet. There are many layers to this storytelling session. We dig into the role of ego on climate change, how the war on terror has hurt the planet, the harmful assumptions of being an activist, personality cults, and of course, how climate change is a spiritual issue. We recorded this episode to one of our go-to hotels, Citizen M. Bowery, overlooking the hustle and bustle of the Lower East Side from their iconic rooftop at Cloud M. Oh, and stick around because our post-interview conversation went even deeper with the role of spirituality and religion in climate change. So I recorded some of it on my phone to share with you guys. Welcome to this episode of Podcast Noor. All right, Adam, three, two, one. Wow, we're here, y'all. It's so good to have you both. Well, first, I kind of want to actually... I'll start with the beginning. Um, Let's start at the very beginning. Sorry. Sound of music? Sound of music. Are we doing it? Yeah, I mean, it just like, it popped into my head. I couldn't help it. Oh, I'm so happy to be here with you, Sophia, and you, Aisha. That was my great-grandmother's name Uh as well. Oh. Yes. Can you... What does it mean, anything? 
Um, I think it means one who lives. Ooh. Or something like that. Oh, yeah, because Aish, Aish is like alive. Wow, mm. I love it. One who lives. Yeah. Because technically my name, Sophia, is Muslim. Yes. Sophia, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's so interesting. Well, it's funny that you say that because I was also telling Adam that um, your name is also Faye. Yes, it's true. Yes. And he was like, what does Faye mean? Mm. So what does Faye mean? Um, Faye is a, is a nickname. Uh, like if my, it was a nickname given to me by my older sister um, because we had a cousin named Tung Faye. But also if you pronounce my name in Chinese, Sophia, it'd be like Sophia, like mm. Faye. But my real Chinese name, my middle name, that's like on my passport and birth certificate is Bua. And there's this, expression in Chinese called ai, which means like the deepest, most wise form of love. Mm. And Sophia wow. is, you know, there, it can be Greek, it could be Muslim, it could be Turkish, and it also meets wisdom. So, and then Nor means light. Light. Ta-da. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I love that we're starting out with our names because I feel like our names are always a great place for mm. us to start when it comes to getting to know ourselves mm -hmm. and in the spirit of getting to know ourselves I'm like saying this with a little smirk on my face because I feel like I ask you this almost every at least once a week Sophia and I show for the first time um how is your heart doing today hmm. um I'm very content I woke up calm and uh I was I was thinking a lot so this month has been really interesting for me <laughs> personally. Uh, one day I woke up and things were blowing up, so it's been a, a Do lot. Do you want to tell us why? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so I made it to the cover of Times Magazine, which that was crazy. Um, <laughs> you just casually shrugging. It was going to be the cover? No, I didn't. You it was didn't a surprise. know? I actually had gotten a nose ring earlier that month, and it was just healing. I wake up because my phone's blowing up, and this bracelet got stuck with the nose ring, <gasps> and I, like, ripped, yanked <gasps> it out because I was like, no way. <laughs> you yanked out your nose ring out of excitement, out of excitement for finding mm -hmm. it. Wow. Yeah. So what did they tell you? They were just like, hey, it's a feature. They were like, yeah, it was a feature, but uh, then I went to the shoot and it was a really like elaborative shoot. So I am, I'm somebody who doesn't um, talk about things until after they happen. Yeah, I <laughs> mean, they I don't want to get something. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was just I like, I wait for it to happen and then I'm like, that, that, that was, yeah, I didn't know about it. And then other than that, I was just um, selected to be one of the youth advisors to the UN general secretary so there's seven of us and that congratulations has, thank you so Antonio that, Antonio Guterres <laughs> and that's just been a lot of work so I've past month has just been bing, bang 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 work and today was the first day I didn't have anything on my schedule so I woke up really calm <gasps> wow except for this except for we're this. recording this on a Saturday this morning this feels really chill doesn't feel okay. like work okay Come, good thank god yeah. I'm so happy because I'm so honored that you're here. I'm so honored that you're here, Sophia. How is your heart doing today? Mm, I'm so grateful to be here. I would take any opportunity to talk to you and you, you both, especially in this space. Um, my heart is grounded. Yeah, I think I am at this beautiful transition of just embracing present and as cliche 
or trivial as it sounds. I'm reading A New Earth, as you know, rereading it, and it's just all about understanding ego and when it shows up and all understanding about presence and how it shows up. And I think it's actually, it came at the perfect timing because in the climate space, I'm not like fully in it as maybe Aisha is, mm-hmm. um, but there's a lot of ego, surprisingly. And I think that was like a big surprise for me, so. Yeah, we, met, we you brought that up as a concern um, during fashion week and it felt like it was a little bit jarring for you. I feel like because you have an interesting story of even how you got into the climate space. And so, um, it's not the place I thought we were going to start, but I would love to know, I think how, (laughs) what role ego does play in Mm. saving our planet or Mm. distracting us from doing so. Mm. Me again. Okay. Um, I think it can be a really big hindrance, especially when we're dealing with a crisis of such magnitude with, at at the one end, you need an immense amount of love and you need an immense amount of nourishment and nurture, but then there's ostensibly evil and it is on a path of destruction. And so to combat that evil, um, one has to create a sort of defense I suppose Uh, and and by this by evil I mean uh, uh, war murder uh, assassinations and and it creates a kind of anger and if that anger isn't channeled or cure or nurtured or allowed to then operate in a sense of like giving what can what it can do is really really heighten uh, a kind of fight within people that is just angry and i think Mm. that's one of the places where earlier sophia and i were talking about the youth movement the youth movement arose at a time where the it came from a place of young people saying future generations i mean past generations you have failed us which i mean uh that is a truth in of itself kind of yes but it became a finger pointing. And with Ooh. that finger pointing, mm. folks were able to raise to platform and platform and platform. And it's really complicated, especially mm. as somebody like myself who has just been recognized at the highest levels of doing this work. It's it's kind of a paradox for me because um, my fame or attention, it's coming at the expense of the utter destruction of the planet. So is it really uh, something that should be celebrated and glorified? I know not, but it is what is happening. And that is also mm-hmm. where ego is coming in because we are cre- curating and, and by we, I mean both internally, externally, people who are looking for something to hold on to for hope, curating profits. And sometimes they're false profits in the hope that this will save us. And I think that is where ego can just, yeah, just just get so big. And um, on names and stuff we were talking about earlier in my culture and my tradition, um, children aren't given names until they develop a personality. Because you are not your name; you are called by your name. Mm. And so, what do you call them before that's given? That's just that's your baby. Okay. So. Until wow. until they uh, show a personality. Uh, or something where 
and and the name is not given by the mother actually or a, a mother in the sense of the name is not immediately in mm-hmm. the hands of the parents we oftentimes select a spiritual caretaker of the person mm. as they're growing and then they give them the name i'm bringing this up because in many tribal native first people's cultures protecting the environment or doing this work um and I, and it is it's so mainstream now it is like literally the rent you pay to live on planet earth and it's humbling it doesn't it's not supposed to build your ego um and and you also operate in the in the constant understanding that you are temporary that you come uh, the earth serves you you serve it and then you you're dust and it's okay to be transient it's okay to leave it's okay but our culture wants wants individuals wants these these uh, heroes, these personality cults that were outlive everything. And that is another huge part about where the ego is just flourishing. So I think to make it a little bit tangible, because oftentimes in the climate space, we use these very like holistic, vague, sometimes buzzwordy terms. And I just want to say, because we're going to get a little bit spiritual here. We always get spiritual in our yeah. conversations. Yeah. Um, ego is directly profit. Ego is directly has caused the systems that have created the climate crisis. And if you think about it, ego, like if we look at colonialism, that is ego. Whenever you fear superior or inferior to anyone, that is ego. So when you have entire collective societies feeling superior, a global north developed countries superior than developing countries or global south that breeds colonialism that breeds waste colonialism that breeds capitalism that breeds so many of these different systems that have been causing the climate crisis so ego um whenever there's war that's also mm. a form of ego mm. um whenever there's you know it's a cycle of ego and trauma yeah and that is truly what's has entirely is the basis of the climate crisis. You could boil it down literally to just ego, not for even for not from just an individual level, but a collective ego as well. A collective ego of like my nation is better than this. I deserve <coughs> this. I deserve to live in a world that has clean air and clean water, but at the expense of others. And it's okay as long as I deserve it. My community deserves it. My nation. Mm-hmm. So it's not to simplify it, but everything in this space can be boiled down to ego. And that's why I guess I'm, I'm, I'm discovering this now, but when I first entered the space, I'm like, Oh, this space obviously wouldn't, wouldn't touch ego as much because it's disrupting these systems that have been created off of like a hierarchy of superiority or inferiority and capitalism and capitalism and coming from you know the fashion industry um like you're like oh of course fashion industry would have ego so i i I guess i enter the space a little naive like oh ego wouldn't exist here not to that extreme but actually it does it it also mimics the patterns that entirely created the climate crisis too it mimics hierarchy it's also maybe like it's not anyone's fault, but it's like all we know. Mm. It's like 
which makes it harder to pinpoint actually yeah and Mm -hmm. it's interesting that we're that's it's it's not interesting it's just meant to be how this conversation started because um yesterday when i saw you sophia i was asking you like what is it on your heart that you feel like you would want to talk about in this conversation because i feel like when it comes to climate there's so many at least Mm -hmm. for me as someone who is not deep into the climate space as as you all are I just end up feeling like I'm hearing the same things Mm -hmm. over and over and over again but there's this disconnect right we get desensitized to like the lines that we hear over Mm -hmm. and over again I Mm -hmm. I feel this way when it comes to like conversations around diversity and representation it's just like and this was like this is off the heels of what I was saying to you yesterday as well which is that I really feel like you know when we get in this habit of hearing words or hearing statements or hearing promises or hearing messages that we no longer feel in our bodies, then the where we need to go is the focus on actual stories and personal stories of like, how did we get here? How mm-hmm. have you seen directly how this has impacted mm-hmm. you? And both of you have really powerful, intimate stories of how you entered the climate space. Well, when was the first time you ever felt properly represented in media? Properly represented? I still don't feel properly represented. Hey, I'm Noor Tagori, and I've been telling stories my entire life. For my new podcast rep, I've spent years examining a more personal story about how the misrepresentation of Muslims in media has impacted American society. I thought I knew the story because I thought I knew my story. But the more I looked for singular, clear answers, the more questions I had. Our story guides include academics, artists, actors, and we bounce around through American history and culture, witness our present and future unfold, and then we find out how these stories affect all of us. Welcome to Rep. Expression is a space in the heart that is unleashed and let free. It runs wild. Listen to Rep on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. So I would love for us to start from that place of our the, the inner stories and how we got here and then move from that space because... I do feel like I've, and I've, I remember both of you as spiritual beings, um, lead with maybe not even vocalizing your spirituality, but it is very clear that you recognize that if we are to save our planet, we have to feel spiritually connected to the earth. And so Aisha, can we start with you? If you want to share a little bit about like your entry point into this space? Yeah, it's, the most difficult question I often am asked because I, I, I don't have one. Um, and and mine is a little different from, so I, w- I was raised with a truly entrenched, a pivotal belief of responsibility. And that happened because of the class status that I, I have in Pakistan, my family has. It's because of the ethnic identity that we have. It's also because when you are poor in one of the poorest countries in the world, I mean, recycling is not. (laughs) It doesn't even exist. It it doesn't. So, um, but actually, I started approaching this work as from the um, 
periphery of watching war and conflict and being really fundamentally frustrated that the climate crisis solving it was on the tongue of everybody around me but nobody wanted to discuss, dissect, or even acknowledge the war on terror that we reaped in the Middle East and then ostensibly uh, uh, caused havoc in the rest of the world. When, see, uh, again, this is from something that um, my elders have taught me, when you commit violence, to that extent, it has consequences. And the climate crisis, as much as it is a result of capitalism, as much as it is a result of colonialism, it is also the result of the global north obliterating mm. the world. And that's and, ego, thinking that's, that yeah, we're superior. Until it came knocking on your own door. Yeah. So you're going to go and uh, murder, bomb communities. Um, do you not think the cries of the mothers in that land, the cries of the children in that land, the land itself is not angry with you? It's so frustrated. Um, so that, and, and that I'm talking from a more spiritual perspective, but um, one third of the world's crude oil comes from the Middle East. The United States military has the biggest carbon footprint on the, uh, in terms of militaries. In fact, it, ha it, is, it is one of the biggest polluters on planet Earth. Uh, the, the planes that fly over to drop drones, they use oil. <laughs> they get it at a cheaper discounted rate. Um, and uh, in this conversation about uh, my future, <clears throat> our future, children's future. The other thing that dawned upon me was while this was all happening, uh, it was almost as if the children of the global south from Middle East to Africa to Asia, they were never really fundamentally um, thought to, uh, they were never truly thought rightful recipients of futures. Mm. We, we did not care. But it took, and, and I say this as somebody who is friends with these people that I work really closely, but I think this shows more about the world we live in than the young activists. It took a kid from the global north for the hearts of the global north to wake up because they could see their child in her eyes. But they couldn't see us in their children's eyes. And, and that is one of the scariest parts of all of this. And this is why I got involved, because nobody was talking about protecting our innocence, our futures, or acknowledging the past and the havoc that was wreaked um, on, on, on Pakistan, on Iraq, on Afghanistan, for, and, uh, for, the, for oil. How old were you and like, was there a pivotal moment when it really, when you realized that the adults were failing you and that you needed to do something about it? So I, I never truly grew up with that sentiment and I don't hold that sentiment because my parents didn't fail me. Mm. Neither did my grandparents. Mm. Neither they, they, did, they did their utter best. Mm. And uh, that's another thing that doesn't resonate with me. I cannot point my finger to them. Mm. Mm. 
So, um, when 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 we think of adults that failed us, there's very particular adults in very particular spaces of power who mm -hmm. had the choice of choosing uh, alternative, and they chose destruction. Um, and when I realized that um, I wasn't angry at my my family right, or my parents, of course. I, I was mourning grief. Mm -hmm. um, because one of the, so there's uh, fast effects of war and then there's a slow onset effects of war. And the slow onset of effects of war cause you to lose culture. They cause you to lose song. They cause you to lose color in your dressing. Because identity. It, identity. Because now it is no longer safe for my mom to walk around in our village um, wearing like the clothes that she would have worn 20, 15 year, 50 year, uh, 15 years ago because it's dangerous because fundamentalism has wreaked havoc in that community. Um, the house that I grew up in in Pakistan, uh, we didn't have a door actually. We had a curtain, and all the all the houses in our village have curtains. Um, after 2013, we put locks and doors. That's 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 how I saw it. So it mm. wasn't um, adults failed us. It was the climate crisis was very much purposefully done, and I think we we need to like acknowledge and understand that before we can get to offering solutions. We cannot keep giving the pioneers of war, the pioneers of destruction, the benefit of the doubt. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for the correction and the reframe mm. and for honoring the adults who made you who you are today. Mm. I, I really felt that. Sophia. Well, what Aisha just said just reminded me of one of my favorite indigenous quotes, mm -hmm. which is, um, we don't inherit this land from our parents, we borrow it from our children. And I think that a lot of communities mm -hmm. actually have always treated the land as sacred, like your family. Um, but, you know, those aren't the families that are usually centered and those ideologies, which is why it's like framed as like, these are like when we're pointing the fingers and like these adults failed us it's like very much also adults from a very specific geographic location class and uh and i think yeah, power structure power structure too. um so yeah so so I, I, my favorite question in this space is like, what is your climate story? Like mm. I, everyone has a climate story. Yeah. I'm like, what is your climate story? And I'm like, when did you first have your wonder of awe moment with nature when you're growing up? Like, what were you obsessed with as a kid? Did you collect rocks? Were you obsessed with water? Like, what was it? Because we had, we all had that as kids. And a lot of times people were like, oh, I grew up in the city. I don't have a climate story. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, we ourselves, we are nature, um, you know, any, that separation again is like part of this, it goes on to this identity of the separation is, is what causes a lot of this disorientation of, you know, humans are the virus. Humans are not the virus. The systems are the viruses. Mm. Um, so I love asking people what their climate story is. And actually that's 
one of the reasons that I don't think I really understood why I was being drawn towards the space, why I identified with this space so much until I could iterate and draw and connect all the dots of my own climate story. And like Aisha was saying, it's not just like one thing. It's like there's so many multi-dimensional things happening in our lives that literally lead us to how we understand ourselves, how we see ourselves. And usually when you're growing up, and you talk, we talk about this a lot, is how you see yourself is how society sees you. Yeah. So you only see yourself through the lens of society. And then you peel that back and you realize that's not the case. And so my own climate story is that I didn't realize this until my adulthood, but my grandparents from my father's side are deep Buddhists. And my great grandfather was a Buddhist leader in China. And they practice Buddhism illegally during the Cultural Revolution and during the Communist Revolution when, um, yeah, Mao Zedong, it just, Buddhism wasn't allowed any other religion. And so then growing up with my father, who my parents were both scientists, mathematicians, they're very factual based, but they're also very spiritual people without even realizing because um, of their grand, their parents. And then living in China for a few years when I was younger, going back every summer, um, I would stay with my grandparents and they also lived in a village, they didn't have uh, proper toilets or proper living rooms. It was just like, you're just kind of all hanging out outside and <laughs> it's, it's, that's the norm. And, it, um, and then later on in life. So I always just, there was always this, uh, one of the fundamental learnings of Buddhism is that you have the symbiosis with all living things, humanity, flora, fauna, everything. So that was always very ingrained. And then also I think another level and layer is that my parents are immigrants. And I think immigrant parents, sustainability is the norm. Sustainability is a necessity. Sustainability isn't something you buy into. It's not about mason jars and bamboo toothbrushes. That is not sustainability. Sustainability is this understanding of like having deep gratitude gratitude and intention for everything you use, knowing that everything has, every action has a reaction. Knowing that nothing comes like, you know, at the expense of others. Um, that was very deeply ingrained. So that was another layer. Um, there's so many other, you know, there's like macro layers and micro layers. And those were some of the macro layers for me and fundamentals. So micro layers was that, when I was in middle school, when I was in elementary school, I lived in Memphis, Tennessee. Al Gore was vice president then, and I, we were obsessed with Al Gore, and then he came out the Inconvenient Truth, and I was obsessed with the Inconvenient Truth. So I, I'm saying all of these details to have everyone listening think about like kind of like macro levels that have contributed to their identity and micro levels that have all led you to how you view the world. Yeah. And then, so, um, I think the, the plain story that you mentioned before is that the universe will very much give you signs if you're not on the right path of, of your highest alignment, I believe. And if you're not listening to the signs, the universe will probably slap you across the face. It would be very obvious. <laughs> and my slap across the face was that I was definitely um, have outgrown um, a role, a position. I was working at Vogue magazine at the time and um, loved it learned a lot, very high highs, very low lows. And I was having health problems. I was having anxiety attacks and it was obviously not working, but I was still, um, I was still remaining there and trying to make it work in. And the slap in the face was that uh, I was on a plane that 
was from New York to San Francisco for my older sister's wedding. I was the maid of honor. And when the plane took off, the uh, left engine caught on fire and we had to emergency land and evacuate, slide down the chutes. And, you know, it was like that whole moment. And the entire time, instead of being like, oh, okay, this might be it. It was kind of like, wait, I can't believe that this is going to be it and I'm still at this job. Um, like there's just so much more. Um, and I think almost every single person on that plane, not because luckily everyone was fine, even the dogs on the plane. Um, it was kind of like a wake up call. It's like, if you're not where you want to be in life, like pivot, readjust. So all to say my entrance into climate was <laughs> very, just like curvy and ups and downs and i still don't think that i'm fully in the climate space um but i love the space so much i love the people so much that i've met i feel like you are are. are. i I think because i think okay one i think that they're like we were just started with our names there's deep meaning to words and i think oftentimes in this space we throw around words super casually or other people do society does so everyone would just be like you're an activist you're an activist like nor you're an activist mm-hmm. Aisha, you're definitely an activist and i'm like oh there's such nuance mm-hmm. within activism mm-hmm. and yeah. i was like i'm an advocate mm-hmm. i'm was a journalist and i still am mm-hmm. and i tell stories and i'm an advocate but even within activism there is such weight that comes with different terms like are you a land defender mm, yeah. are you an organizer do you do mutual aid mm. like are you working at a nonprofit? like does everyone who work at an environmental nonprofit are they activists because a lot of environmental nonprofits are actually you know they have completely like hi- the hierarchical yeah, yeah. <laughs> systems at play of the climate crisis yeah. so um so i think yeah i think that th- i I try to move very intentionally through those space because so I don't, I, in respect to the people really doing the work that I yeah. have so much incredible respect for, like yourself, Aisha, um, and just people, and some of the people who are doing the best, most incredible work, they don't even have a social following, you'll never hear their name. Mm. And like Aisha was saying, one of the, one of the problems and one of the things that we're coming at battles with right now is that there has there has been a cult of personality that has developed yeah. and that doesn't necessarily serve the climate movement at large there's been a, a lot of cult of personalities we know a lot of their names it, you know it started with the Greta's of the world and now they're and it's incredible because it's like okay we can finally recognize these people especially mm-hmm. from they're from the global south or they're marginalized yeah. but it's almost become like an individual movement instead of collective movement and there are people like Aisha who continuously reminds us of the collective movement but then there are some people who are like yeah I'm gonna run with this and and really you know be on this cult personality pedestal and and mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. other youth is like ooh, that's a job that's a career that's not oh I'm not just an influencer I'm an influencer for good and I could be you know like that it feeds mm-hmm. back into the ego mm-hmm. and then Mm. this past New York climate week, I met so many youth who had just graduated from college and they all wanted to be climate influencers. And I'm like, what does that mean? Hi there, Noor here from At Your Service. At Your Service is a storytelling company. We tell stories 
as a form of service. And the way I think about it is story first, medium second, meaning we don't think, hey, I really want to produce a podcast. What should it be about? No, we think of it as we have a story we want to tell. What is the best medium, the best way to tell it? Maybe it is a podcast. Maybe it's a documentary series, a virtual talk, a speaker series, a dinner party. Maybe it's a book club. The list goes on and on. We also love being of service to companies and brands and nonprofits to help them tell the best story possible so that they can serve their audience and their communities. So if you want to check out more of our work, you can do so at ays.media. You can also find the transcripts for all our podcast episodes right there. And if you're enjoying this podcast right now, it would mean so much to me if you could leave a review and give us some feedback. Let us know if you like this style of podcast or if you're looking for something else. And of course, if you have any stories you'd like to pitch for us, you can do that through our website as well. As always, at your service. If I may riff off of please, that. Please, please, um, yes. I, I thought about this deeply, probably intellectualized it a little bit, but... Um, it's dangerous for multiple contexts, and I don't, I don't even blame the young people who are graduating out of college who want to be that, but rather, for some reason, especially when we are observing freedom movements, mass movements, um, from the women's rights to civil rights in this country to the SALT march in India, our idea of an activist or somebody who really, really gives their all is like, a Gandhi, an MLK, a, a Rosa Parks, peop- and and especially um, around around young people who are from the global south, we have such different expectations. So, you society wants martyr-like figures who have nothing, who like Gandhi have slippers <laughs> and a shawl, and and for a black brown activist or a person of color, alignment to that lack of materialism is the only way that you're um, allowed to have integrity. And I'll, I'll further unpack that. Um, so oftentimes um, when one observes patriarchy, um, the the kind of the the idea that a woman is either a Madonna or a whore uh, is is a binary that um, mm-hmm. we we look at. Mm-hmm. I think for activists, you are either like a Jesus-like personality, or you're like politician celebrity personality, and there's no in between, and it creates really really big problems because we want people to be so down to earth that they have utterly nothing and they are suffering and then we consume that trauma porn and then we run with it and 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 that is like um environmentalism that is activism that is um the the epitome and that that personality is more like a jesus-like figure yeah and everybody will point at you and tell you your fault if you don't align with that Mm. and uh, there's the aesthetics of activism as well yeah. And uh, the space is heavily dominated by women. But you can't be f- fully feminine or even like mm. f- 
or you're sexualized. And then you're said, you're not an activist. And uh, I can point to so many different examples of that. Um, and Sophia, um, you're looking at me and I, I want to I say names, but maybe this is a conversation for another time and I can <laughs> share with you how this is unfolded and how dangerous it is to young women. Mm. Um, and then on the other end, we want our like politicians, we want somebody that is um, uh, like Michelle Obama, like, uh, like uh, I'm, try I'm trying to think of somebody who we give moral integrity to that is in a space of political power. And that has really, really bad consequences on the, the people that are operating in this space because <laughs> society wants them to operate in, in this binary. And I felt it personally. If you, uh, she, for example, had nail polish on, mm. on a, on a picture and mm. somebody was like, I bet that nail polish is not sustainable. I had mascara on and people were like, why do you have mascara on? Where <laughs> did you get that from? Or like, um, every little thing you do is poked and prodded because you are supposed to be, uh, like, uh, such a, um, uh, Jesus like figure that you have nothing. Or on the other opposite, uh, if you're getting a lot of political um, applause, if you're getting a lot of social applause, if you're getting a lot of uh, attention within the mechanisms of capitalism, you're expected to take on office, you're expected to, to mm. take on this like public servant personality. And the thing is, this whole rant that I'm saying, this binary is a false binary because everybody can be and should be an environmental activist in their space. We need scientists who have more, who, who care about the environment. We need business folks who care about the environment. We need the fashion industry to care about the environment. We need chefs to care about the environment. Like, and, and, and to the point where it becomes such part of our habits that it isn't activism like noun like this glorified thing but it is part of our lifestyle and there are communities who live like that mm. it takes living outside of that community to verbalize it articulize it put a title on it and then say this is a thing this is a concept when when if you're doing it and like Sophia you were talking about earlier sustainability isn't this thing that you it, it's like walking you're not thinking about the steps that you're taking you're just doing it because you have to and in that you're creating an environment that appreciates everything that you take in with the knowledge that you need to give back yes can i just say that this false binary plays out in so many different tropes in the climate space so there'd be the false binary of who were you know putting on a pedestal. There'd be a false binary of, um, even with products, they're either sustainable or they're not. And, you know, or there's a false binary of who can be involved in the movement itself. Either either has to be youth or the older generations. Like there's a binary, there's these binaries will continuously play out. There's a binary of it's like, I'm either an environmental activist or I'm not. And it's like, th there, this, we are losing the spectrum, the nuance in every single conversation when it comes to climate. And that's actually something that societally we need to transcend from. You know, it's happened with other movements, the LGBTQT rights movement. It's like, you're either straight or you're gay. Now we realize it's like, this is such a spectrum. 
um, you're either uh, a racist or you're not, you know? And with like so many of the global racial reckoning, we know that these aren't binaries. And in the climate space, we are now being asked for society to transcend that binary lens as well, to embrace the nuance. And my last thing that I just wanted to mention was that um, sustainability is often presented to us as something we need to buy into or we need to work towards or we need to be part of by earning it. But sustainability is our birthright. And like Aisha was saying, like, it's like walking. You don't think about it. Sustainability is our birthright. And there's a lot of gatekeeping around it. And anything that is our birthright, like joy and love, there's gatekeeping around that, too. If you think about love with like Valentine's Day or, you know, Hollywood movies or you think about joy, like you think you need to buy a vacation or to experience joy. It's like any birthright emotion value mm. is gatekeeped. And I think that's the thing we're trying to help people understand right now is like sustainability is always was always there it was always within us and that's it's always it's, accessible it's so interesting too because like the things that you're listing out are things that are innate they're things that are free they're things that are literally inside of us and it's like how have these stories tricked us into believing that they don't belong to us that they that they are they only exist outside of us and that because it's like if you recognize if you find out that love and joy and sustainability has been inside of you all along and you know how to how to wield that power then what is the power that is unleashed mm. um there's i'm i'm referring to something right now that i don't remember exactly who the author is but when that power is unleashed but also when you realize that your existence is dependent on the water on the yes. air quality yeah. on what you eat of course you're going to defend it and in communities where you rely on the river itself mm -hmm. to get your drinking water in communities where you rely on not nature to get your meal to get your clothes to get your medicine of course you're going to defend it because i promise you if tomorrow the faucets in new york city stop working and people don't get clean water, they will fight for it. And it's so odd that we put uh, communities that are uh, uh, saying that this is our right um, on this like novel, uh, far away, yeah. indigenous, yeah. like uh, a ways part of the world, when in fact, just like love and joy and uh, sustainability is a birthright, so is clean air, clean water, access to food mm. and shelter. And that is all at risk. And that's where actually the human rights argument comes into climate. Yes. And it's become such a uh, important part and, and the climate lawyers and the environmental litigation field has been uh, uh, took a long time for them to catch up, but it's been really important mm -hmm. because these are human rights and they are being violated right now mm -hmm. by nation states, by corporations, by people that are actively putting what you, the air that you are going to breathe and the water you will drink um, and making it poison. It's being poisoned. Um, and, and so there's you're both the, the 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 this work that i do and so many of us who are in this space we depend on this 
utter love for the planet and for its people to keep going. And when you love something so much, you fight for it. Mm. And that's where the fight comes in. Mm -hmm. And that's where the defending of the water, the, the land, and, and, and how it's used, and resources, and consumption, and, and clothing all comes in because it's worth the fight. It's worth saving. Can you define land defender and water defender and tell us how it is possible for everyone to be those things? Mm. Actually, I can't define it. Um, I think uh, for different nations, it is different and that title is earned and it's given to you and you are made of a community's water protector or land protector, but it's not something you throw around either. Because land defense, especially in a world that property rights has created borders, it's created nation states, being a land defender comes with standing up to military in so many parts of the world. It means that people will try to steal the very thing that your, your ancestors' blood is merged with. But how can we all become land defenders and water protectors um, in our, in our, all, in our, our individual capacity? We, we do have that opportunity and we do have that responsibility. And to be a land defender, I think from the very small means planting seeds. Like I, everybody asked me, what is one individual action that people can take to protect the environment? And I'm like, plant a seed, touch the soil, touch some grass, folks. And then other than that, um, stand in solidarity with the people. If you're in an area where land is occupied, stand in solidarity with them when they're trying to get that land back. Um, there is a movement to try to get Lenape land back. There Which are, is the land that we're on, we're right, on now right now in New York City. Yeah. Um, and you can support that land defense. Um, there is a movement and, there, and our water, believe it or not, especially in Canada, a lot of the water is owned by corporations. It's owned by your Nestle's, it's owned by um, other folks and it's not given, it's not, it's people don't have access to the water. And how do you get involved in water protection is you allow the commons, the waters to be um, managed by people. <laughs> Hi there. I want to share with you a good deed opportunity. At ICU Foundation, we work to alleviate local homelessness and directly serve community members in need. We do this through our community pantry, family food bags, hygiene kits, snack bags, winter care packages, and grocery gift cards. Lately, we've been seeing incredible impact by partnering with businesses and organizations to host volunteer events where their teams make and distribute the ICU care bags. ICU is our response to a community member who, when we asked what she needed most, responded with, we just need to be seen. So if you would like to join us in seeing and serving the community, email us at contact at isyfoundation.org. Okay, back to the show. Mm. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Um, I often think about how, or Adam and I actually talk about this all the time, he'll say things like, you know, the earth 
will be fine without us. Like we like it's humanity that is on its way to extinct extinction if we continue this um these practices, this lifestyle, because you know, the earth in your words, Sophia, has gone through so many deaths and rebirths and it will with or without us. And so um, I often think about that, like framing of the story, right? Like how do we get people mm. to care? Mm. And it's it. And the answer that I think about is like by getting them to care about themselves mm. and how like people like do do we actually care about ourselves mm. do we think do we love ourselves mm. do we think about um our like ge the generations to come from our own lineage and so um how do you both meditate on that and then a, a little sub question to that is what role does art play in all of this well i would take that one step further i don't even think it's you know, we need to love ourselves um, in order to move the movement forward or, or, or care ourselves. I think a lot of times, you know, that question is asked all the time. Like, what's the one thing I could do to impact the environment? And um, I love your answer, Plant to the Seed. I always say, um, look within yourself and see what is disharmonious from within if we're not like our love for ourselves will be you know an evolution of ongoing process and there will be ebbs and flows throughout the days but the harmony within ourselves like that deep rooted foundation if we're so in disharmony within our own bodies mm -hmm. our minds our spirits our souls of course we're going to be disharmonious mm -hmm. in the world mm -hmm. the entire reality our nature the state of it is a projection of it's it's a temperature check it's it's mirroring exactly the human psyche of where yeah. we are um especially since our actual physical bodies are also a part of nature yeah yeah and yeah. when when the water is dirty it shows up people get sick mm -hmm. when the air is dirty it shows up people have asthma like everything we're doing to planet earth we're doing to our own bodies yeah and i would i would even say everything we're doing to each other we do to planet earth and then like the water is the water is dirty and the air is polluted because our minds and spirits are polluted and trauma filled and dirty and we haven't done the healing from within so then we would do it to each other so then that means we do it to nature it's all very interconnected um and i think a lot of times people are like well so let's actually have some statistics because I think a lot of people think that we're trying to fight the climate deniers of the world. But actually, climate deniers in the US is less than 10%, and the US has the highest percentage of climate deniers. So to even try to like touch these 7% of Americans, it's actually not worth our time. 70% of Americans, the majority of Americans, are not climate deniers, but they're climate delayers, according to Yale's um, School of Climate Change. They there's been studies that have shown that people know that climate science is real. They don't deny that, but they delay it. They're like, we have lives to live. I have, you know, food to put on the table. I have a job. I have kids to feed. I like they cannot process it because it's almost too much to process. Right. Um, mm. And then I always compare 
moving through the climate crisis is like moving through the grief cycle. So mm. we've never been taught how to collectively grief. And right now we're going through a massive collective grieving cycle because we're going through the six maths extinction of our timeline. And if you've ever lost a loved one, you know that it's not like you forget that you lost a parent or a sibling or a loved one. You just have acceptance with it. You live with that grief and it's ongoing. It's like deeply part of your soul now. Um, and just like that, there's seven emotions and stages that you go through in the grief cycle. And that's the same with the climate crisis. We have to work through these emotions and stages and cycles in order to come to this level of acceptance. And Aisha was like, why wouldn't you defend something you love so much? And it's like, we, a lot of us came into the space through fear. A lot of like the Greta's of the world. It's like, our world is on fire. It's a climate emergency. And whenever anything is emergency, your first reaction is fear, mm. which, we enter through fear, but we haven't transcended collectively mm. past fear yet. So mm. it's like, what do we do with that fear? And it's hmm. it during, I think the pandemic is a good analogy because when COVID first started, there was a lot of misinformation. There was a lot of fears, unknowns. We went into lockdown. We started in fear and we were fighting each other for toilet paper because we were like, I just need to survive and I yeah. need toilet paper. And then we transcended that fear into mutual aid, into love and gratitude for our first responders, into organizing, into mm. depending on the people, into community fridges. And, you know, all of this, we, we, we transcended into emotions that were actually sustainable for our communities. We depend on ourselves. And we haven't done that with the climate crisis as a whole. The climate crisis is harder because it's way more to grapple and grasp and understand, but we need collective grieving and to move through this, mm. through this stage cycle, so. Mm. Um, I, I have first a response to what you were saying, Sophia. People came into the space in fear, and I would I would say it was a strategic, and probably necessary, because one fear mm. sells, and two mm. uh, it was needed by to to push political will. Um, political will because the native communities uh, for so long, see before the word climate crisis was even uh, mainstream. Uh, or, or climate activism was mainstream, people were doing it for hundreds of years. Mm. And they were in, investing in love and investing in each other, but it wasn't uh, uh, sexy, it wasn't selling. So I, uh, looking back in retrospect, um, it was maybe one, it was a way to get inside the doors, but now we really need to think intentionally about how we propagate our work. But to what you said earlier about uh, um, planet will define without us. I think that's also a misnomer that we are we are told to believe so we have apathy. Mm. Mm. And it is more it comes more from the global north than it does from the global south. Uh, because no the the planet needs us actually. Just like squirrels pick up nuts that they eat and then they leave the seed behind that grows trees. Right. Humans are essential right. to wow. keeping biodiversity alive. Humans mm. are essential to keeping nature alive. When you understand um, the variety of different uh, of fruits and vegetables, you can, you can grow multiple crops. You're not just led 
left with one version of an apple or one version mm -hmm. of a of a of an orange or one version of a lentil and then in that in that developing and propagating the seeds and the soil you can create um, a ecosystems and food systems that allow nutrients. And uh, the agricultural crisis is a mass part of the climate crisis, as is a biodiversity crisis. Mm -hmm. So a country like mine, after it goes through flooding, it has an economic collapse. The economic collapse could have been less subdued a little mm -hmm. had we had multiple versions of grain, multiple versions mm -hmm. of tomatoes, mm -hmm. multiple seeds that could grow in different environments. Mm -hmm. But we didn't, but it's monoculture culture and it's that's what's happening in India that's what's happening in China that's what's happening in Pakistan it's happening in the United States as well right. so actually the planet needs us mm. and um, and and that's where the responsibility comes into it too because when you're told you're insignificant then you're like okay whatever it doesn't yeah. matter yeah um, but it, it needs to be a shift of like no you're not you're not insignificant in fact, uh, this is something that my elders taught me, and Sophia, you were mentioning it earlier too. The planet has a symbiotic relationship mm -hmm. with humans. Just like in the Galapagos Islands, there's different finches that grow with different beaks. Um, it, as a result of being in a very specific habitat, humans evolve mm -hmm. for their very specific habitats. They are meant to be caretakers of those habitats. In fact, that's another Another layer I'll add to this meta conversation, <laughs> mass migration and uh, the refugee crisis is expanding because of the climate crisis. In fact, this last year, 2022, we had more refugees in the world due to climate, due to natural disasters than we ever had of war. So when humans are removed from their natural habitats, not only do they feel the pain, the land suffers as well. It has lost its guardians, it's lost its harborers. Um, in, in, in a, in a, I'll throw in another thing. Uh, Palestine, it's undergoing an occupation right now. In that process, the olive trees are being destroyed. The variety of olive trees are being destroyed. The, the environment has experienced a loss, not just from the obvious um, war, but also, uh, formerly, 100 years ago, people were taking care of those trees. They were propagating them. The environment was thriving. The air quality was better. The soil quality was better. The food was more nutritious. So uh, this, this really is a meta-crisis of so many different layers. Um, and, and we have a responsibility to it. We have a responsibility to the kids that come after us, but like we belong here. We belong on planet Earth. There's no other planet that has this life. Like this is in fact our home and it's made for us and it lives within us and we come from it. Mm. Thank you so much. Thank you for schooling me. <laughs> no. I, I'm, I, it, it is actually such an honor to be to learn from you and to learn from yourself and um i i like i come to this conversation as somebody who literally like sincerely asks these questions because mm. like i feel them for myself too and mm. i'm like and i i'm learning so much about reframing the story for my own involvement in making this and i think as somebody who is currently really like in the trenches of my own spiritual journey which is what i has been uh, taking up a lot of my time and mm -hmm. my energy right now in, in the best of ways as as a human 
um, as the human experience welcomes. Um, it's okay. I'm, I'm learning more and more how uh, the climate, the climate journey is spiritual is a spiritual one, and that um, we're not here to like I think see the results of all the seeds that we plant, but we still have to plant them. Um, in that spirit, I would love to know what is a question that you both are asking yourselves right mm -hmm. now. Sophia, you can go first. My, my, my journalist mm -hmm. sister. Um, a question I'm asking myself is, can we collectively grieve without a common enemy? Mm. So wow. I think that at least in American society, the times that we have been able to collectively grieve, like if you look at 9-11, mm. we came together bipartisan, but there had to be a common enemy. Right. You talk about this a lot. Right. During COVID, we came together, but there had to be a common enemy. That was China. Yeah. And that was, you know, I was in China during when they first went into lockdown. So it's China. Um, and so with the climate crisis, can we collectively grieve without pointing the finger at anyone at another society without saying it's your fault without bringing the ego in of superiority and just mm. taking responsibility and moving through it ourselves. That's a, that's a question I'm asking ourselves, like who is going to be the next common enemy and can mm. we, can we do it without one? Yeah. Like are we, cause we are smart enough to, yeah. Yeah. We have the ability yes. to, yes. Yeah. And politically and like, can our politicians can we narr media media is a huge role in this. Can we all own that narrative and yeah. take responsibility to not pinpoint someone as a common enemy? <laughs> well, I think that also like that kind of comes back to what you were saying about ego in the very beginning of this and the role that ego plays in all in the, in the climate crisis. And it just like, it, it almost, sometimes I find myself asking like, how did it get so bad so fast? Like, how did we get to this place where it seems like, it feels like there's just, um, just so much evil has been done. How mm. did we get to this place? And, and, and I feel like because ego is consuming or can be easily manipulated or can be, um, can even trick ourselves, can convince like people in power that they are doing the right thing, even though their, their definition of the right thing for themselves becomes so um, limiting and, and potentially harmful. So I, all that to say, I'm like sitting with, I, I, I appreciate you presenting that question because that's, um, feels like a continuation of the bigger question of like, why are we where we're at right now? Mm. Aisha, do you have a question you're asking yourself these days? Yeah, it's kind of very personal. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I've kind of stumbled into uh, being mm -hmm. known. Mm -hmm. And one question I'm asking myself is how not to recreate a personality cult. Um, how not to, uh, and, and for myself too, because that's protection. I cannot save the planet, let alone like people, let alone even a portion. And, um, and I don't want anyone else to think that they have to be another me. In fact, we need everyone. 
and mm-hmm. um, living in America, living in a society that that wants personality cults, that wants individuals that they can say, thank you for doing the work, I'm gonna keep living my life. Mm. Yeah, mm. ooh, um, that just gave me chills. We, we need less of that. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. um, that's one question I'm asking myself and um, that means for me, I have to be very articulate and, and, and intentionally push against it. Because on the other end, I am so extremely privileged to have it. Mm-hmm. And somebody's listening to my voice. And um, so uh, f- how, how will I use it to do work, projects, um, mm-hmm. uh, tangible, measurable outcomes that will help my communities? And um, yeah. Can I share something personal with you on that sure. reflection? Because I can see how that it, how it um, can mess with you. Because mm. I definitely feel like I came into being a quote public figure or whatever at a very young age, mm. and when I didn't have a fully developed brain, but I had a lot of passion, mm. and I thought like I knew exactly what I wanted, and that there was such a lack of representation at the time that I I felt like the weight of so much mm-hmm. on me that I did things or I took on things that I it wasn't for me but I I it was always like the quote unquote adults around me would be like well who else is going to do this mm-hmm. well who else is going to do this mm-hmm. well who else is going to do this and um I honor so much that you're asking this question when you are and how you are because sometimes and this is very very personal and very spiritual and i talk about this with my with adam a lot and like sometimes i wonder if it like you this responsibility comes on i'll I'll say i'll speak personally it makes me uncomfortable to do this but i will um but sometimes i'm like did I get this responsibility Mm. because I didn't really want that? Mm. Like I didn't, I really wanted to like tell stories, but I Mm. never, I never wanted the, I never wanted to be the story. Mm. And of course, like things happen the way that they do. Mm. And, um, you have to like, you use the opportunity in the way that like that feels best, but it takes time to adjust how you do that. And that's why before we were getting on, before we started recording, I told you like, my goal in using social media is to get people off social mm-hmm. media mm-hmm. and to like start gathering and to start uh, having people um, see people as individuals and as as human beings who all have their own individual story mm-hmm. and who have their own ways of trying to be of service. And I think that I continuously have been coming back to the spirit of service mm-hmm. and what it means to be of service yeah. to ourselves, to uh, to um our immediate circles to the community and then to the the broader message and story and i think that i i see that you are doing that so clearly with um with polluters out and with your the the climate university and mm-hmm. um and just in the the way that you're car- like i can i can hear it in your voice aisha like you're not speaking on your own behalf okay. you are speaking on behalf of your parents and your grandparents and the elders around you and the land itself. Mm-hmm. And I can feel the weight and responsibility that you're putting on yourself. It's really big mm-hmm. and it's really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and sometimes it'll feel like overwhelming because because people make it seem like it's all on you, mm-hmm. but it's also not. Mm-hmm. And every single time you use your voice and you speak to these experiences and you share these stories and you share these concerns and you echo the message of planting a seed, know that your words are also the seed Mm -hmm. and that you're planting them over Mm -hmm. and over and over again Mm -hmm. and that we all got you. And that there it's, it's something I like I've been thinking about too, as I'm on my own spiritual journey and, you know, asking bigger questions around like faith and identity and hijab and all this stuff. And I'm, I'm just like, it's, I'm not living in the same world that I was Mm -hmm. living in 10 years Mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. There are so many people who are doing amazing work now We're we're, we've inspired, we've like created spaces, we've Mm -hmm. paved paths. Like it's not all on us individually, but because those seeds have been planted, you almost have to trust that they bloom on their own and that, even though this responsibility has fallen on you and the attention has fallen on you, you will not, you will never see, um, like even remotely close to the, the full picture of, of all of the, uh, the harvest Mm. that exists in your trails. Um, but it exists, it does. And I know that because I've heard Sophia talk about you in this way before too, and like this is it becoming just, an Aisha fan. <laughs> it's it's it's, it's more of like it's not just it's not Aisha as an individual though. Mm, yes, it's it's every, what you represent. It's what yeah. you represent, and it's the the I love this Maya Angelou quote that yeah. I come as one, but I stand as ten thousand, mm. and we're talking about the ten thousand, yeah. and I want you to feel lightness in that mm. because you yeah. don't you are not one, mm. and yeah. we see you as mm. not one. Mm. But right now, sometimes you get a little bit more attention and, and it's so good when it's uncomfortable. It's good because mm. it makes you re-interrogate and interrogate and don't mm. ever get comfortable in mm. it. It's okay like to enjoy it. It's mm. okay to have these like positive experiences with it, but you don't ever have to get comfortable because you, kn- you know, and that's why this whole conversation yeah. around climate started with ego. Yeah. And yeah. this is like, it's a, it's a forever ongoing human test, yeah. this ego and our yeah. dance with ego and, yeah. and Maybe it's not about vilifying it and making it an enemy, but making it a witness mm. to our process mm. so that when we engage with our own ego, it's it's out of curiosity. It's out of asking yeah. it questions rather than hating it yeah. and wanting to like rip it out of ourselves yeah. and be like, look at how evil you've been. Yeah. But instead be like, what are you trying to show me? Yeah. What limitations are you trying to show me yeah. so that I can create more space mm. to get the work done? Because the space exists yeah. like clean water, clean air, all of these things that we know when we feel are our right they exist they're yeah. possible yeah. it's just a matter of us creating the space yeah. to be able to attain it yeah. yeah and can i just say aisha that um the cult of personality trope is you can tell that you are of service to the movement because usually when people have these moments where they're thrust into the spotlight the next step is like, okay, what am I going to do next? Mm. And you're always coming to this conversation of like, what does the movement need to be next? Yes. And that's the difference is like, you shouldn't feel shame or guilt. Mm. You put in so much work, Mm. you've done so much service. So there shouldn't be any other emotion except for this is just more momentum Mm. to continue Mm. my work Mm -hmm. and this work of everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was this story I was reading earlier and earlier as in two years ago, but um, 
during a time in, a, in, a, in Rome um, when the village ran out of oil for their lamps, what they did was they set to fire bodies to have light. And that analogy sometimes feels very much like the personalities, mm. cults that we use for any movement, not just climate. We cannot keep setting light to people because, uh, or setting them on fire for light because we need, Whoa. we need Whoa. to, um, yeah. wow, really, really mm. not only harness it, cultivate it, bring it in a way that is, um, beautiful but not at the expense of people so even the people that are in these individual personality cults it's a loss on it's we're setting them on fire as well wow and it, that is not sustainable it's going to come to an end people are burning out that is burning out so uh, i appreciate both of your advice so much uh as like people that i look up to especially you Noor, because uh I was, I think I was like 17 when <laughs> uh, I first heard your name and your story. And mm -hmm. Sophia, I, I know within the community, just um, your name comes uh, and your, your integrity precedes your name. Um, but I really appreciate both of your advice because mm. like those of us that are in this space, I, I really think that we also need to create families and systems where mm -hmm. 10 years from now, 15 years from now, we're still in community, we're still talking to each other. We have to be the examples yeah. of sustainable relationships Oof. as well um, before we can preach it out to the rest of the world. Yeah. Mm. Wow. I love that. I love that. Isn't it so interesting how it comes back to sustainable relationships and sustain like and, and our own human sustainability so that we can con continue and carry on the work? And what a beautiful and terrifying story in reference, like I've never visualized burning out like as it's like setting someone on fire mm -hmm. and using them as light. And um, and I wanna bring this back to the the concept, the question of art. I know Aisha, you're a poet and I come <laughs> from that tradition as well. Yeah. And it's and it's funny because I like the my um, almost ability to write poetry comes out of a place of desperation mm -hmm. when I need mm -hmm. it the most. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how we can um, we can use our art as, is, mm. like, can the art be the oil? Can the art be the light? Mm. And can that, because the art exists outside mm. of self too? Mm. And, and what is your relationship with poetry and art? How is it giving you the sustainability that you need to continue this work? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, I also turn to writing out of desperation. Um, one, also because everybody in my family, one way or another, is an orator, is a storyteller, yeah. or there is such a beautiful, beautiful language. It's actually a combination of Arabic and Farsi. So it has so many uh, uh, lovely anecdotes and ways of saying things, but um, on art and how art is necessary, there's this beautiful poem, it's called Revolutionary Letter Number Four, and it goes something along the lines of, left alone to themselves, people create art. They, they make, um, they, they build. And, mm -hmm. and in an ideal world, I'm 
and in, in the future, and this is one of my hopes, if we can get our basic necessities met, we, the human species can create so much. And on the other hand of like, what is it at risk? All that we've created from the Qur'ans to the Rig Vedas, to the Bibles that we read, to the art that we create, to the things that we write. What if there's nobody on the other end to witness that? Mm. How unfortunate, how big of a loss <laughs> will it be? Because um, we, pass, we pass memory down through objects. We pass memory mm. down through art. We pass like it, our spirits down through these things. And mm. human beings, our beauty is in our ability to be observers, our beauty in our, in our ability to take what we see and cr imagine. And what if there's nobody on the other end to receive that, to see these structures, these buildings in New York <laughs> City, hundreds of stories tall, what was all this for? Um, and that's why art is so important. It will, it etches a memory, it, it leaves a document, it, it shows that we were here and we tried in, in our little worlds and in, in the bigger <laughs> space, um, from a recipe that you get from your mom to like a little gift that somebody gives you to the paintings you drew as a kid at, in fifth grade. Um, we, we need them um, just, to, just to have a human experience, a beautiful experience. It makes life worth living. While you were saying that, I was closing my eyes and I was trying to picture what that world would look like. And it was... Um, I, it was a sadness that felt different. Mm -hmm. It was like a sadness that didn't only belong to me. Mm -hmm. It was a collective sadness. And maybe, maybe the potential of that future is the collective enemy. Maybe it's like the idea of like living in a world where our art isn't witnessed by future generations, our existence, our trace isn't witnessed. Um, and that feels like something everyone should be able to get behind. Mm, yeah. I think that one of the things that has been robbed of us most right now is this is that most humans love being futurists. I think every storyteller, every art creator, they are futurists essentially because they're creating and they're building, they're reimagining what a different future could look like that they would want to live in. That's why you make art for um, present and future generations. And it's being robbed of us because also through this climate lens that our future is gonna be post-apocalyptic. It's gonna be um, run by AIs and robots. And yeah. you know, this doom and gloom where like the entire world has like burned down or you know, it's like the day after tomorrow or the last of us, it's like this, that is the future that's being portrayed mm, now. Yeah. And actually futurism and being futurist was like these most, the most like fundamental part of being human mm. and that's actually what united us the most is like collectively creating for a better future and mm. um yeah i just think that if we can tap into like we love being futurists we love that radical imagination we love creating art because that art is a physical representation of our consciousness and subconsciousness as mm -hmm. and the pinpoint that we are right, living right now mm. like there's so much to fight for and yeah. to love for. Yeah. yeah. Thank you both so much. 
the way that we uh, wrap our conversations is fill in the blank. So there's this statement. If you really knew me, you would know. You can do one, you can do two, you can do three. Um, Aisha, you can start. I'm very, very clumsy. <laughs> like, it's just chaos. Everything's broken. <laughs> but not the earth. Not the earth, but yeah. There's like like a toothpaste stain on my shirt and my shoes are like, there's a hole in my sock. They're just, I'm just, I'm very... You have a scratched retina. Yeah, I have a scratched retina. My <laughs> laptop nose ring is broken. Came out the other day. Oh my yeah, gosh, my phone that was is broken. Like, it's just added it, but <laughs> it's yeah. I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. No problem, Sophia. If you really knew me, um, ooh, okay. If you really knew me, you would know this isn't my first life. Ooh, <laughs> I love that. Wow, that's so beautiful. Thank you both so much for your time, for your wisdom, for your stories, for your questions, for your corrections, for your reframes, for your schooling. Um, and thank you for your service. Appreciate you both. Thank you. Thank you, Noor. After this interview, we continued the conversation on the role of religion and spirituality in the climate crisis. I recorded some of it on my phone because it was just too good. So I hope you collect some gems. Thank you so much for listening. Young people are experiencing more climate anxiety now than before. And the reason why it is more prevalent in the younger generations is because when you are you're more closer to life and the closer you are to life the closer you are to the emotions of life and the further you get and so it has to be a conscious spiritual reevaluation replenishing of of like your your commitment and then the other thing is all energy uh, energy doesn't disappear it, it stays and um, there's a lot of loss happening in the biodiversity in the in the animal kingdom and it and that pain of the animals doesn't just dissipate either the cries of a mother whale after losing her child is not just gone it reverberates and it stays here and it appears in humans in like young people in in children where we're all feeling this anxious this 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 kind of like depression that our home is in danger and it's because our animal brethren and our and our animal family is experiencing like massive massive destruction it and, and that's 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 the other um, thing about reciprocity. It's not just about like the seed that you plant and the water you consume. It's also about the pain that you cause, mm -hmm. and it's showing up in climate anxiety, mm -hmm. in like the, f the feeling of responsibility, and also like this pain that the younger generations are in, and it's, like that really needs to be acknowledged. Can I take that one step further? Where also right now 
in like the entire timeline of humanity, we feel the least religious than we ever felt on a collective level. And when religion and spirituality is taken off out of like the upbringings and foundations of young people, they don't, they're not also given the tools to reconnect to the source. Mm -hmm. So when we feel this pain, we use source and as a way to release, we use source as a way to, cause source can transmute energy and change it into action, change it into love and to change it in different ways. But if you don't have that tool, if you don't even know that's accessible to have, you're not even accessible to source and young youth around the world aren't giving these tools anymore, whether from a spiritual, religious or any sort of lens, then it just stays stagnant. It just like stays as mm -hmm. like a grease film layer on top of human humanity. And that's also, I feel like that's also the case too, is that we're not giving the right tools anymore from that lens to process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then there's the other danger of spirituality, religion being used for the destruction of the planet yes, and people. True. And it's or just making the same hierarchical yeah, structures. Yeah. And um, But it feels like for you, you, you mentioned, you mentioned that like Islam was a part of how you got into this because of what was the verse again? It's like, which one of your Lord's provisions will you deny? You know, that's my favorite surah too, yeah. Surah Rahman. And um, when you, when you take without uh, thought about where it's coming from, when you, um, don't aren't grateful for everything that you have you deny the provisions yeah. as in like it's not refusal refusal as in denying you're denying that they were given to you mm. that they were given as gifts mm. um, and you're denying taking care of them that's also a complete reframe because the way that the chapter goes is like that verse is repeated over and over and every other verse is like a list of like created creations that were given to the to the earth but this is such a beautiful approach to thinking about it because it's not which of them will you deny like will you deny the existence of the bees but it's will you deny their right to exist by harming them too yeah yeah and like Every action that we take has a consequence. And um, you also, just like we were talking about earlier, you never know how much harvest will come out, but you don't know how much damage you can do too. Right. And like apathy allows you to not yeah. think about it. We don't think about what took for that thing to end up on our supermarket, what took for those clothes to end up on our body in the shop. And that's, and it's, it's slow and it requires deep, deep thinking and there's no money in it. And there's just like, it's, it's mental work. Yeah. But we, we kind of like avoid doing it because we want to do everything else that will give us obvious accolades, tick marks, titles. Yeah. But no, this, this is what makes a difference because frankly, like what gifts are we leaving our children? Like it's, it's a, it's a good ancestors question, right? Podcast Node is an at your service production. Producers include myself, Adam Khafif, and Sara Isa. Editing by Nuran Mursi. The theme music is Thunderdome, Welcome to America by Portugal the Man. 
Extra gratitude and thanks to our storytellers, Sophia Lee and Aisha Siddiqua. As always, at your service.